and thank you all for standing by. At this time, I'd like to inform all participants that your lines are on a listen-only mode throughout the conference until the question and answer session of today's call. Today's call is also being recorded. If you have any objections, you may disconnect at this time. I will now turn the call over to the Honorable Jane Harmon, Director, President, and CEO of the Wilson Center. Ma'am, you may begin. Thank you, Operator, and good morning, uh, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to those uh, joining from the United States, the Middle East, and around the world. Uh, this is a very special 160th, not making this up, edition of the Wilson Center Ground Truth Briefings. Um, and if you don't know this, and I think many of you are repeaters on our calls, a Ground Truth Briefing is a call to discuss uh, an extremely uh, newsworthy uh, issue uh, with uh, people on the ground in the hotspots we're talking about or recently on the ground in those hotspots and extremely knowledgeable. We call on our, our, our own exceptional uh, cast of geniuses at the center. Uh, you'll hear from several of them today. But we also call on uh, our bench of 5,000 scholars, and we call on a lot of other smart people that we know. So we think uh, that what we deliver uh, in these hour-long sessions is uh, uh, the facts as best we can get them free from spin, and I'm very, very proud of what we do. And I'm looking forward to today's discussion put together by our superb uh, Middle East program and our um, unbelievable distinguished fellow, Robin Wright. Long before the word coronavirus meant anything to us, Robin was watching developments in Tehran with an eagle eye and producing the Iran primer, which is not just on health issues, but it's on the whole panoply of issues involving Iran. No one else does this, uh, and that primer uh, is an online uh, effort, uh, uh, online project, joint project, between the Wilson Center and the U.S. Institute of Peace. Our work on Iran is yet another reason the Wilson Center has been named the number one think tank in the world for regional studies three years in a row. And it continues as the country is hit by the triple whammy, uh, Iran we're talking about, uh, of COVID-19, a collapse in oil markets, and rising tensions with the U.S. Iran was an early epicenter of the coronavirus pandemic. Several senior officials caught the disease, including the deputy health minister and the country's, the, the country's figures, Statistics have, have vastly outpaced those of neighboring countries. To date, there have been over 120,000 uh, cases of coronavirus um, and 7,000 reported deaths. In contrast, Egypt's population is 25% larger than Iran's, but Egypt has had only 10% as many cases. On Monday, uh, Iran had its single largest day rise in six weeks, recording over 2,000 new cases, a month after beginning to lift restrictions. Though the lockdown may be behind them, many Iranians will continue to struggle economically. A recent poll found that over 40% of respondents had no source of income, and President Hassan Rouhani reportedly said in April that the country's budget deficit will reach a third of GDP. Iran was the fourth largest oil producer among OPEC countries last year, but the oil price war has taken a massive hit to critical revenue to a critical revenue source that was already struggling under the weight of US sanctions. Tensions with the United States flared again recently as Tehran dispatched five oil tankers to Venezuela and it was reported 
uh, in Reuters that Washington is considering an unspecified response uh, to the Iranian shipment. Uh, this is, of course, on top of all kinds of uh, incursions uh, uh, in the Gulf um, uh, of ships, not all bearing U.S. flags uh, by Iranian boats. Uh, on top of that, Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khomeini recently threatened to, quote, expel, unquote, U.S. troops from Iraq and Syria. In short, there's a lot of ground to cover today, so I'm very excited uh, to turn things over to uh, Robin Wright and our excellent panelists, Suzanne Maloney of the Brookings Institution and Henry Rome of the Eurasia Group. Uh, thanks again to Robin and Marissa Horma of our Middle East uh, program for putting together this event. Please join me in welcoming the incomparable, the truly incomparable uh, Robin Wright, who's visited all seven continents and who writes day and night, never eating or sleeping, or at least that's my version of Robin Wright. Please welcome Robin Wright. Uh, Jane, you're always too generous, and I'm very grateful for the kind words. Uh, it's been an honor to be at the Wilson Center, and, and uh, I've so enjoyed working with you. Uh, I'm really thrilled to be hosting this panel today. I can't think of two better people to be giving you insights on Iran today uh, than Suzanne Maloney and Henry Rome. As Jane said, Suzanne is uh, at Brookings. She's the interim vice president and director of the foreign policy program. She served as a senior advisor to the State Department on Iran. Uh, she's also served on the Secretary of State's policy planning staff. And she was director of the Council on Foreign Relations Task Force on U.S. policy toward Iran. Her books include Iran's political economy since the revolution and Iran's long reach. Henry Rome is a senior analyst at the Eurasia Group, specializing on Iran. He previously worked at Harvard's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. Uh, he is a former journalist, worked for the Jerusalem Post as its only Farsi-speaking journalist. One of my favorite factoids about Henry is that one of his first jobs was as a play-by-play -play commentator for college summer baseball in Cape Cod. So um, as a former sports reporter myself, go Henry. Uh, I thought I'd begin very briefly with uh, an overview and to, to try to take, set the stage for the, the thoughtful analysis, analysis we'll get from our two speakers. Um, first on the pandemic, Jane mentioned the number of cases. Uh, one of the things that's interesting is that the uh, death rate in Iran is 5.8%. Uh, the death rate in the United States is 5.9%. Now, no one believes the numbers in Iran, and we're not sure about the numbers in the United States, but it's interesting that we're talking about comparable death rates. Uh, as Jane said, Iran tried to open again on, in April, April 11th in most kind of more rural or less populated areas of Iran, and on April 18th in densely populated Tehran. Um, we've run a couple of very striking photo essays on the Iran Primer about life under the pandemic. Iran actually reopened drive-ins for the first time since the revolution to give people something to do. Uh, we did another one on people who are working out on their rooftops, uh, wonderful, you know, women, uh, some of them in hijab and some not. Uh, and the markings, now that they've tried to reopen mosques, the markings like they have in New York City parks, you know, the chalk lines uh, of where people can sit inside mosques to make sure they're social distancing. But it has not gone well. 
and I want to give you a quick timeline with some numbers because it's very striking. So Iran's first cases reported were the first two deaths on February 19th. We now know that uh, it probably goes back to at least December, but that's our first benchmark. Within 39, uh, within 39 days, Iran was reporting 3,200 cases a day. That was the peak on March 30th. The curve then steadily went down, but 33 days later, by May 2nd, the number of new cases dropped to 802. And it looked like the V everyone had talked about was beginning to happen, that Iran was indeed beginning to contain the virus. But 16 days later, as of yesterday, the number of cases had soared again to almost 2,300. So it's reaching a second peak that is very close to what the first peak was. Um, Iran's medical staff has paid a very heavy price. Uh, yesterday, one of the Iranian papers ran a special eight-page report on the number of physicians and nurses who had died. Um, its count is 107. Um, there have been some bizarre moments during this pandemic. Uh, one of them was when the Revolutionary Guard commander unveiled a handheld device that allegedly detected COVID-19. Uh, it appears to have been the same fake bomb detecting device that had been used earlier and, of course, does not detect COVID-19. Uh, an Iranian huckster promoted camel urine as a cure, and another huckster claimed putting lavender on your butt prevented the disease. So the second wave is having an impact beyond just human lives. The second wave appears to have hit hardest in Khuzestan, where 16 cities have been shut down again. And Khuzestan is Iran's most important oil-producing province. So the second wave has had a serious economic effect. Um, now, economically, Iran was already struggling because of U.S. sanctions. Uh, and then, of course, we went through the oil glut. Iran's budget is premised on $50 $50 per barrel of oil with sales of at least 1 million barrels a day, which is down to less than a third of what they were selling after the nuclear deal uh, was signed. But by April 1st, the price of Iran Heavy, which is one of its main types of crude, had dropped below $14 a barrel, and sales were estimated to be as low as 300,000 barrels per day. So one of the telling things about the economic impact is that Iran's decision to lob off three zeros from its currency and give it a different name. And to show you how much the real has been devalued, when I covered the revolution in 1979, $1 was worth 70 reals. This month, $1 was worth 162,000 reals at the free market rate. And then um, finally, politically, the virus has hit just as the Islamic Republic begins a year of elections, uh, the first for parliament in February, and then the president uh, will, presidency will be voted on a year from this month. Uh, critics blame the parliamentary elections uh, as the reason for delaying the news of the outbreak because they didn't want to discourage people from turning out. Uh, the turnout is often a barometer of how popular the regime is or how interested people are in participating in the system. Um, President Rouhani's handling of the health crisis is likely to have a major impact on who runs next year to succeed him and how Iranians vote and if they vote. 
Uh, as we all know, Iran faced an unprecedented series of protests in the last three years before the coronavirus pa uh, pandemic. Uh, the regime claims it's in control of the situation now, but it has, during this pandemic, uh, reportedly arrested somewhere around 3,000 activists, journalists, and others. Uh, one last little bit of color and that is that for me, one of the most telling episodes illustrating the crisis for Iran was on National Army Day. Last year, it held a very flashy parade uh, through the streets of Tehran with other parades in more than a dozen cities. This was at the height of tensions with the Trump administration. Um, last year, it was tanks and long-range missiles loaded on flatbed trucks rolled through the streets of Tehran. Uh, Troops goose-stepped in front of a, a dais filled with military brass and the president of the country. Uh, this year, it was a very different show. This year, the Army Day Parade featured troops goose-stepping in hazmat suits and face masks. There were columns of ambulances. The flatbed trucks this year didn't carry missiles. They had been converted into mobile clinics. And military vehicles were spewing huge clouds of disinfectant into the air. Um, members of the band performing were six feet apart. This year, the president skipped the show. He sent a message instead. He said, the enemy now is hidden, and doctors and nurses are at the front lines of the battlefield. Our army is not a symbol of militarism, but a manifestation of supporting the nation and upholding its national interests. The big question, of course, is what the long-term effects of all these crises will have uh, will be on the revolution. Will it provoke more protests, uh, anti-regime activity? So I want to end there and um, hope that Suzanne and Henry will answer some of those questions. Uh, for anyone interested in asking a question, let me tell you now to start uh, weighing in so that we can take a list. Hit star one and uh, we'll put you in a queue for questions. I want to turn it over to, to Suzanne first to answer some of the questions politically. Suzanne? Thanks so much, Robin, and thanks so much to Jane Harmon for kicking us off. Um, I agree with all of her high praise of Robin's um, incredible reaching capacity, and I'm, I'm really honored to be here as part of this conversation. Look forward to hearing Henry's analysis of the economy. Let me just start off with a, a few brief remarks about uh, the, the politics of the virus and of the current moment in Iran and uh, a little bit uh, on the U.S.-Iranian relationship and the state of play there. Um, as you've already heard, of course, Iran was the first epicenter of the coronavirus uh, outside of East Asia and in many ways, uh, whether deliberately or simply by virtue of the lack of capacity to implement a serious and sustained strategy of containing the virus, the Islamic Republic has chosen to live with the pandemic uh, rather than to try to confront it in a, in a, in a successful fashion. Um, we've seen uh, the statistics coming out of Iran um, for obvious reasons. Uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, sense that these statistics aren't fully accurate, but I think even if you're basing your estimations of the scope of the, of the corona crisis within Iran on the official tallies, 
um, it's worth noting that the uh, the test rate itself is uh, deeply worrisome. The fact that uh, there are 120 known cases and there have only been somewhere in the realm of about 700,000 Iranians uh, tested, that suggests uh, somewhere between a 1 in 6 and 1 in 7 uh, rate of infection within the country. And obviously, there's a huge amount of variation. Um, and uh, as with many other places, including the United States, the insufficiency of, of widespread testing is part of the difficulty. Um, but I think that it reinforces the, the likelihood that the statistics that we're seeing out, out of Iran are, are really uh, underestimate the scope of, of, the, of the spread of the disease and, uh, of course, of its broader impact on, on both politics and economy. Um, as, as Robin suggested, this is a, a, a pandemic that hit Iran um, very early. Um, and in fact, uh, while there wasn't an official acknowledgement of the spread of the virus in Iran until the official acknowledgement of two deaths, there was a concern expressed publicly by health, uh, health officials as early as January calling for a curtailment of flights uh, to and from China. That, of course, didn't happen um, for many weeks and didn't happen really in any sustained way throughout the crisis. Um, and I think that that uh, speaks to one of the problems that Iran has faced throughout this pandemic, which was the early unwillingness to accept or acknowledge um, the, the scope and depth of the crisis. And this is, you know, something that in, in many respects, the Islamic Republic, uh, it, it's emblematic of the Islamic Republic's approach to dealing with other types of crises. Um, but it was a combination of both paranoia. Uh, you heard some of the, um, uh, you know, suggestions that this was a hoax or an American uh, conspiracy um, from some of the senior leadership, including uh, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei at the outset of the crisis. Um, but it was also, I think, a reflection of the necessity, necessity both of the economic relationship with China necessity uh, from from a, an ideological perspective, because, of course, the pandemic in, in Iran really began in Qom, uh, the seminary city that's about an hour and a half south of Tehran, uh, which is still extremely important to a, a country that styles itself as an Islamic Republic, and necessity uh, politically. The fact that Iran had parliamentary elections scheduled for uh, February 21st uh, was, I think, a major factor in the decision to try to keep this under the rug to the extent possible in the early weeks of the spread um, because of the concern that people would not be willing to go out to the polls. And Iranian elections are uh, an important uh, legitimizing activity for the Islamic Republic. And there were already legitimate, I think, concerns um, that turnout would be low simply because of the fury that had erupted in uh, November after hikes in gasoline prices, which led to major rioting across the country and to uh, severe repression, probably the most severe and sustained repression that we've seen in response to uh, Iranian political upheaval since the early 1980s. Uh, and and the, the priority was really on trying to avoid an embarrassment at the polls. As Robin said, um, coronavirus actually hit the Iranian leadership, I think, in a tougher way, in a more direct fashion than in any other country that I've, I'm aware of. Obviously, we know of reports, uh, even from here in Washington, of uh, people close to the center of power uh, who've tested positive. 
But in Iran, uh, you really had a sort of the entire leadership uh, all the way up the chain appear to be implicated. Several dozen member of members of parliament uh, tested positive, a number of mid-ranking IRGC commanders, um, most famously perhaps uh, Vice President Masume Edzikar, who many of you may remember from the seizure of the U.S. Embassy in Tehran 40 years ago as Sister Mary, who was the spokesperson for the hostage takers. She was diagnosed and has since recovered, uh, along with a, a number of other uh, senior people in the, uh, in the executive branch of the Iranian uh, political establishment. There were, in fact, a number of deaths as well, influential diplomats, members of parliament, advisors to uh, Iran's foreign minister, Javad Zarif, and to its supreme leader, Ali Khamenei. And this all, all, of course, tracks back to the fact that the, the outbreak emanated from Qom, um, and the religious leadership is relatively intertwined with the senior leadership of the state. Uh, many of those who were infected have since recovered, and, of course, this is one of the points of pride for some within the Iranian establishment. Um, but it's clear that uh, this hit harder and closer to the structure of power in Iran than it has in many other countries. What does all of this mean for the future of Iran? Um, as Robin suggested, uh, this is uh, the pandemic, the economic impact of the pandemic, as well as the health effects of the pandemic, have produced a, a new wave of criticism uh, against the system. Um, the, the, the frustration in the early uh, weeks was largely focused on uh, the failure of the government to respond effectively to institute a serious quarantine or suspend travel with China. There was also just an enormous amount of frustration expressed at both a popular level, but also I think within clearly within the establishment as well, over the sense uh, of inequity that is an injustice that it, that is one of the the sore points for many Iranians about uh, the way that the system works today. Um, there was a lot of discussion of the the fact that Tehran had donated three million face masks at the very uh, outset of the crisis to China and that, in fact, uh, Chinese companies were purchasing masks and helping to create a shortage in the domestic market. Um, and this was uh, this, as well as the, the uh, accusations of hoarding, of the distrust and, and sense of secrecy that was uh, part of the early uh, response to the crisis, I think, fueled this broader sense that this is not a government um, that is, in fact, capable of managing a crisis of this extent in a way that really reflects the Iranian national interest. Um, this is the kind of debate that has really um, festered in Iran as early as the the 1980s and the way that Iranians debated uh, the war with Iraq. Um, I want to use that as a kind of pivot to the next point, which is that, you know, depending on uh, what statistics you believe and, um, you know, the way that the government continues to manage this crisis, uh, we're going to see very high numbers of infected uh, patients in Iran, as all, but also casualties. Um, and this is, I think, a crisis that really does loom as large as the crisis uh, of the war with Iraq. Um, and it's one that I think is going to have a profound impact on Iran's dem demographic trajectory. Uh, just yesterday, an Iranian newspaper published a projection, um, which is not a function of the pandemic itself, but again, has been exacerbated by uh, the current crisis that the Iran's uh, society is aging. This has been true for many years since the government instituted a successful family planning uh, pro process uh, in the late 1980s. 
Um, but Iran is now at a point where uh, in, in not too many years, uh, more than a third of the population will be over the age of 60. Um, and that's a very difficult uh, demographic pyramid to be able to support, particularly without a functioning uh, economy. In terms of the politics, uh, the you know what I think we've seen so far is uh, some uh, some existing schisms have been worsened. Um, you see a very clear distinction in tone in the way that the, that uh, the Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei has handled this from the messaging of President Rouhani. Rouhani has uh, come under a great deal of criticism for his own lack of capability and for the sense that there was nobody really in charge. And what he's trying to do now clearly is try to manage expectations. Um, he gave a speech uh, just a couple of days ago in which he effectively, um, you know, it was not a rah-rah speech. He, he talked about the situation being better than before, but also emphasized that the time of COVID is not over. Um, and I, clearly, as Robin suggested, that's still very much the case because, in fact, the pandemic is raging uh, in Khuzestan and in other parts of the country at an even higher level than it was at the outset. Uh, Khamenei, of course, uh, takes a much more antagonistic tone, continues to emphasize the, the role and responsibility of the United States, uh, and points to the failures of the industrialized world in managing the pandemic. And the extent to which the Islamic Republic has essentially uh, performed relatively well by comparison. Two other points, I think, where we've seen existing schisms uh, exacerbated by uh, this crisis. One is um, within one of center and periphery. Uh, I've never seen the extent and breadth and fury expressed by various provincial officials toward the central government, irrespective of ideological composition or perspective that we've seen uh, published in the Iranian press over the course of the past two months. There's just this deep sense of frustration, distrust, uh, and, and fury at uh, Rouhani Khamenei, the whole uh, center, central government, uh, as a result of the sense that the provinces have essentially been left to um, fight this on their own. And I think that that's an important dynamic that we just haven't seen play out in public in quite the same way that we have uh, over the course of the past two months. Um, the other point that I think is also important is that all of this has hastened the collapse of any kind of a meaningful coalition representing what used to be called the reform movement and what has, uh, over the course of the past eight years under Rouhani's president, really been a sort of reform moderate wing of the system. There is now open feuding. There is really no uh, clear strategy for uh, making any kind of a, a serious political comeback um, as, they, as, as uh, Iranians look forward to presidential elections next year. I think this is important um, and, and really can't be uh, understated because there is, for so long in Washington, we have been used to this kind of binary in Iran, good guys, bad guys, conservatives, reformists. Um, the reality is, and it's... Uh, it's detailed in, in, in depth in part in this uh, new New Yorker piece uh, that was released yesterday, um, that the, the prospects for any kind of a serious reform movement to have a political impact on the, on the future course of the Islamic Republic by working within the system, by elections, by a participation in the representative institutions of the Islamic Republic is, is, is effectively minimal at this point. Um, and uh, if we're hoping to see sort of a, a new moderate front emerge from within Iran, uh, it won't be through elections. It won't be through participation in institutions. Um, uh, just one final point on the domestic politics. 
you know, we shouldn't underestimate how much the capacity for repression remains intact. Um, as Robin said, there have been thousands of arrests uh, since the outbreak of the pandemic, and there uh, is, has been a clear strategy to not just retain the uh, Americans and other foreign nationals held in Iranian prisons, even as tens of thousands of prisoners have been released, but also, as in the case of uh, French researcher Fariba Araha, to extend their prison terms. Um, none of this means that uh, the regime is in a stronger position today than it was before the pandemic. I think, if anything, um, this is a regime that is going to continue to be tested, but we should not underestimate the resilience. One final point on, on the uh, U.S. relationship. None of the problems that predated the outbreak of COVID-19 have magically vanished because our attention is distracted. The incentives for U.S.-Iran escalation remain high on both sides, even though the risks now loom even larger than ever before. We've seen this play out in the Gulf. Uh, we've seen this play out in, uh, in, in the attacks by Iranian proxies against uh, U.S. allies as well as U.S. forces in various parts of the region. Um, the Iranians, I think, at one point thought that they might be able to make some traction on sanctions relief as a result of the pandemic. That's clearly not something that the, the Trump administration was willing to entertain. And so what I worry about is that while we are all focused on, uh, on our own logistical constraints, on the impact of the pandemic around the world, we will be uh, failing to appreciate the possibility and, and even the likelihood of, of a return to what preceded the pandemic. If you think back to January 3rd, the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, and the closest that the United States and Iran have come to direct uh, military conflict since at least uh, 30 years, um, I think we could be back there again, uh, particularly if we're not careful. So I'll end there and thank you all. Uh, great, Suzanne, thank you very much. One thing that's kind of interesting to know in, the, in terms of Iran's place and relationship with the world is that 23 countries have traced cases of COVID-19 to Iran through the DNA, uh, which is very interesting. And it's, it'll be interesting to see what kind of rippling effect that may have once we get beyond the pandemic. So let me turn it over to Henry uh, to talk about the economics of the situation right now. Henry? Great. Thanks, Robin. Thanks, Congresswoman Harmon and, and Suzanne as well for uh, uh, for the honor of participating in this important discussion. And thanks, uh, as always, to our listeners for dialing in and hope everyone is staying healthy. I, I'm, I'm going to touch on the economic implications of U.S. sanctions, coronavirus, and the oil price collapse. And I'll conclude with a few observations about what we're likely to see over the next six months or so. So on, on, on sanctions, it'll, it'll be no surprise to anyone on this call that U.S. sanctions, which uh, were imposed starting with the U.S. withdrawal from the nuclear agreement two years ago, have had a very severe impact on the Iranian economy. The economy shrunk by more than 5% in 2018 and an additional 7%, a little more than 7%, in 2019. Oil exports collapsed. Inflation, we saw, soared, uh, weakening the purchasing power of everyday Iranians. And as Robin mentioned at the outset, the currency weakened dramatically against the dollar. And many Iranians have been, have been put out of work and have been suffering as a result of, of the economic dislocations uh, incurred by the sanctions. But by the second half of 2019 or so, the economy began a process of adapting to the distortions caused by 
the sanctions. Certainly, the oil sector itself has been decimated, but the non-oil sectors began picking up the slack. And I'm, here I'm talking about the services sector, manufacturing, petrochemicals. And they also, the Iranians focused on trade with countries closer to home, to countries like Iraq, Turkey, Afghanistan, and the Gulf, uh, as opposed to looking more farther afield. The main exception there is, is China, which I'll mention uh, in, in a few minutes. And, and this trading strategy, uh, in, in part, is, is aimed at evading the U.S. sanctions because trade across, across borders with, with one's neighbors is much harder to sanction and, and harder to stop. So just as, a, as context here, the, the, the U.S. continues to say that the Iranian economy is in free fall, on the verge of collapse, and it's no doubt that 2018 and 2019 were very bad years, but headed into 2020, we began to see signs that the economy was stabilizing. Uh, and then enter coronavirus. As, as Robin and Suzanne have, have mentioned, the Iran, Iran's response, it, it, the country was never fully shut down, but inner city travel was halted, shrines and schools were closed, but there was no stay-at-home order, and even those limited restrictions, many of them were lifted in mid-April. The, the closures uh, essentially di uh, disrupted domestic economic activity and also foreign trade, and it's important to note here that even as Iran chooses to reopen uh, and, and as it experiences the second wave, it, it, it also can't force its neighbors to make the same choice. And Iraq, in particular, is a good example. Iraq closed most of its borders and has been very reluctant to reopen uh, as, after seeing its own cases of coronavirus uh, be linked back to Iran. Exports to Iraq were just a quarter of a million, uh, or rather a quarter of a billion dollars in April, down more than half from six months ago. Now, Su Suzanne mentioned why the Iranians decided to uh, act slowly and I think reopen, reopen quite quickly the, the uh, relationship with China, religious uh, uh, dimensions as well as political necessity. And I just want to tack on uh, one more to the list, and, and that's the economic uh, uh, conditions. And, and, and I'd argue that the Iranians were both unable and unwilling to imp impose a larger lockdown on society uh, for these economic reasons. When I say unable, this is, as with many developing countries, Iran uh, faced a very stark choice, which was if you were to shut down the country, shut down the economy, it would then have to take responsibility for social welfare benefits, ensuring people can eat uh, in, in a very, in essentially a, a total way. And, and like many developing countries, Iran simply did not have the logistical or financial capability uh, to do that. The Iranian economic stimulus came so far to about $8 billion, which is less than 2% of GDP. And just for comparison, uh, perhaps this, this isn't a fair comparison, but the U.S. CARES Act alone totaled $2.3 trillion, 11% uh, of GDP. And Iran's neighbors in the Gulf from the very beginning of the crisis rolled out dramatic stimulus packages as well. For example, Qatar with a, a package of 13%. Of, of GDP. So that's, from a financial point of view, uh, Iran was probably unable to contemplate a larger shutdown. But the other half of this is, is they were also unwilling. And, and I think here it's important to look at the budget. Now, the Iranian uh, president, President Rouhani, proposed his budget at the, end of, uh, at the end of last year in December. 
And over the course of January and February uh, and, and into late February, as the pandemic was clearly starting, the government revised that budget. Uh, and that revision was was put into place. And it was in that revision that military spending was dramatically increased. For example, the Revolutionary Guards received a 33% increase in funding in that revision period, To and that comes out to be a total of 62% increase in funding overall compared to last year. The besieged militia was uh, also saw a nice funding increase of 144% from the proposal, and a 30% increase over, over last year. So I think these, these decisions indicated that Iran does not intend to let the public health crisis diminish its capacity for domestic repression and foreign intervention. And it's also telling that the government has not, uh, has not had access to the various pools of off-book money that's held by the clerical establishment and the supreme leader himself. So I think from an economic point of view, the government was, was both unable and, and unwilling to take an approach that uh, more decisively prioritized public health reasons. Now, within this environment, of course, we had the oil price collapse in, in, in March. Uh, Iran's heavy grade, as, as Robin mentioned, it sold at around $45 in March, now sells for under $20, and that's without the discounts and other incentives that Iran offers its buyers. Now, the, the, the impact of the oil price collapse is, is complex for a country like Iran. On the one hand, in last year's budget, oil accounted for 30% of government revenue, and this year it's less than 10%. Now, this isn't because of a kind of a Green New Deal initiative, certainly. It's, it's because U.S. sanctions have driven Iranian exports down dramatically from almost 2.5 million barrels per day two years ago to under half a million today. But the, the, the impact there is that the, the government had already been planning for a dramatic decline in oil revenue, and that has helped Iran, I think, insulate the economy from the oil price collapse and some of the volatility. Now, on the other hand, of course, in, in an environment as, as Iran is in under, under severe economic sanctions facing the coronavirus pandemic, every dollar matters. And that 10% number, the 10% of revenue coming from oil, uh, looks very optimistic right now. And consider, as, as Robin mentioned at the, at, at the top, that Iran budgeted for selling 1 million barrels per day at $50 a barrel this year. And if the current trends hold, Iran this year will be exporting half that much oil at less than half the price. That's hard currency that Iran needs to support the import of basic goods from countries like China, and it really means a, a fairly difficult um, path ahead for how Iran tries to tries to cover that gap. So I'll I'll I'll, I'll conclude with, with a few thoughts about how Iran is trying to uh, muddle through here over the next six months or so. The most immediate response has been to dig deeper into foreign exchange reserves, tapping into the country's sovereign wealth fund, and that can certainly work in 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 the short term in, in covering some of these gaps. But it is worth emphasizing that that gives Iran less flexibility and less maneuver room as you look into the medium and the long term, that it's depleting uh, that cushion. Second of all, it's, it's sought various forms of sanctions relief. Suzanne mentioned a direct requests that, that the U.S. And, and a fairly uh, consistent campaign from the Iranian foreign ministry to see U.S. sanctions relieved in total. Uh, which which has failed, but but also an effort to receive IMF 
uh, loans. The Iranians have requested $5 billion from the IMF. The, the U.S. has campaigned to block that request, although uh, the, the IMF is still, still working on it as of the last um, public reports. And, and it is actually likely that Iran will have access to at least some of that uh, money if they're able to work out the logistical challenges involved in transferring it. Uh, 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 about half that amount is uh, designated under uh, what are called special drawing rights, and those those are um, allow a member state to access that money without the opportunity for the U.S. to try to veto it. But even if Iran gets access to some of this uh, some of this money, we really shouldn't overestimate uh, how much of a game changer that would be, especially because it, it, it looks as though it would be channeled through various mechanisms like INSTEX and a separate systems set up by the SWIFT that, that are designed to handle humanitarian trade but have their own very significant logistical problems. So it's not as though Iran will get uh, billions of dollars deposited in, into the central bank and it can go from there. It is a much more complex process. So in the meantime, Iran is, is pursuing a, another risky strategy of raising money. Even before the coronavirus outbreak and the collapse of oil prices, Iran planned to fund 20% of its budget by selling off state assets and issuing bonds. And we've seen over the past several weeks this process kick into high gear with a so-called privatization campaign that's centered on the Tehran Stock Exchange. I say so-called because it's not uh, – it, privatization in the way that, uh, that uh, according to kind of the, the textbook definition here, the state-owned companies, which are known for being inefficient and corrupt, are not being handed over to private sector actors who can improve their efficiency and transparency. The shares of these companies are being sold on the stock exchange at very small, very small shares, and for millions of Iranians have the opportunity to buy them. So it's the, the strategy here is to raise money by persuading individual Iranians to invest in these state-owned companies. Um, and, and this approach has been cheered on not only by President Rouhani, but by the Supreme Leader Khamenei himself. Over the past two months, in, in large part because of this new campaign, the Tehran Stock Exchange's main index has doubled. And that's in the midst of a collapse of economic activity and a recession and the fact that these companies themselves are, are poorly managed and, and inefficient. So many economists inside of Iran and outside have raised concerns that there is an asset bubble building here. And I think it's, it's just worth flagging that if, if the Tehran Stock Exchange experiences a significant uh, crash or, or, or other type of dislocation, the effects would be quite severe. And, and depending on how quickly that would happen, the, the impact on, on average Iranians could, could rival that of, of, of U.S. sanctions, given how many have invested their savings into the exchange. So it's, it's, it's just worth keeping an eye uh, on this financial uh, aspect of, of the government's effort to, uh, to cover its gaps. So, so just to wrap up, with the exception of, of the stock market issues that I just mentioned, I see little sign over the next six months that economic conditions would deteriorate so significantly that it would cause Iran to somehow bend the knee and seek negotiations with the U.S. I, I, I think they, the Iranians have proven over the years that they have an immense capacity to muddle through and, and, and keep the lights on uh, despite the severity of, of the, the economic conditions. And, and so I think 
we're likely to see between now and November at least status quo and stagnation on both the economic fronts and the diplomatic fronts as well. And with that, I'll, I'll turn it back to Robin. Thank you so much, Henry. Uh, I appreciate both of you so much. This, I've, I've learned a lot just listening to you. Um, I want to ask one question, and then I'm going to open it up to others. Jane Harmon has the first question after um, after I ask my questions. Please, if anyone wants to add, ask a question, uh, press star 1 to get in the queue. Um, so for Suzanne, I, uh, my question is, uh, this has all coincided with a real uh, change in the balance of power inside Iran. The parliamentary elections were won by hardline and conservative politicians. And I wonder what this tells us about who's likely to run in the presidential election, what the mood of the country is, um, and if, if the sense that people will want to participate, because the, as I said earlier, the, the turnout has always been used in the past as a reflection of whether people support the revolution or willing to participate in its system. Are there names who are emerging, and um, who, who might we see jockeying for position? Thanks, Robin. Um, obviously, you know, we are used to looking at Iran in, in increments around elections. Um, Iran has had more elections than any other country in the Middle East, with the exception of Israel, in the past 40 years. And while they're certainly not free and fair by any international standard, they're often interesting and uh, they are occasionally competitive and unpredictable. Um, and so that has been, I think, a real marker for us in terms of understanding what, where the balance of power is going within Iran. I think it's becoming less relevant, to be frank, um, simply because this is not an arena of, of, of political competition, which has been shown to be effective in changing the core policies of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Um, the sole exception to that might be the JCPOA, but effectively my strong conviction is that that, that was not a Rouhani uh, gambit. That was uh, His election was deliberately engineered in order to permit the Supreme Leader to make that reversal of his prior policies uh, toward the negotiations. Um, so, uh, you know, while there is already quite a bit of conversation about who's going to run and what that might mean for Iran, it's almost certainly going to be someone who is, uh, by by the historical standards of the Islamic Republic, from what we understand to be the conservative side of the political establishment. Um, my own presumption is that it doesn't necessarily produce any real change in the balance of power as we see it today. And it's not the most interesting or important um, uh, political signifier in terms of what the future of the country is going to look like. Um, so whether it's Larajani, we're all very skeptical uh, that Ali Larajani, having uh, contested elections before, um, really does stand a chance of capturing the popular vote, or whether it's uh, Mohammed Bakr Kalibas, the, the former mayor of Tehran, um, whether it is uh, someone uh, like Ali Shami, the current um, uh, national security advisor, uh, but uh, suggested that he may be being pushed aside at this point. It is going to be someone um, from the conservative side of the ledger, and that that will probably only consolidate uh, authority under the current uh, balance of power that we see today. What I'm more interested in is who are the defectors? Who is going to defect in a serious way from the Islamic Republic? 
Um, and, you know, we've just had a, a, a new video from uh, Mohammed Khosini, the former president, who's been um, largely kept under wraps by the current system. Um, he called for a national reconciliation. There have been some interesting signifiers about to what extent there is uh, any real momentum underway to try to bring those who were associated with the green movement back into the fold. My guess is it's going to go in the opposite direction. And I'm looking and waiting for that political figure, probably someone who's traditionally associated with the reform camp, who essentially breaks away in the advent or in the run-up to the elections next year and begins to talk about a different political pathway to change. It hasn't happened yet, but I think it's only a matter of time. Thank you. And one quick question for Henry, because uh, we're, we're rapidly running out of time, and I do want to have some time for questions. Um, the IRGC has so penetrated the economy. Uh, it's always striking. And I'm wondering if they have used the pandemic to increase their control, their leverage um, on the economy, kind of, but on, wider, on, on the wider system as well. Have you, have you seen any signs of that? We know that they have had a high profile in the pandemic um, in, in various, in, in many different ways. But do you see that um, changing or shifting or the IRGC trying to exploit the pandemic uh, economically to heighten their role in society and, and government? Sure, I think that's right. And it actually dovetails nicely with what Suzanne was saying about the centralization of, of, of power within the Islamic Republic. I, I think even before the pandemic, uh, and I'm looking back to the November increase in gasoline prices, it, it became quite clear that the parliament, this was not a decision by the parliament, and it wasn't a decision exclusively by the executive branch. It, it was one taken outside of those normal channels and uh, a body that's been established called the Supreme Council for Economic Coordination. The same is true for the budget. The, the budget was, uh, in, in a fairly extraordinary set of circumstances, reviewed very closely um, by other centers of power that were not the parliament, which traditionally had, was one of its few, uh, one of its few roles. And, and I think as we've now gotten into the, into the pandemic, we've seen that centralization increase with the military and especially the Revolutionary Guards being granted basically the, the authority to head up the, the response. So, so I think, yes, it, it, and it's part of this broader, broader trend that, that we're seeing of the Supreme Leader's Office of the Revolutionary Guard slowly taking over levers of power that had existed even just on paper from other bodies uh, of, of the system. Okay, I promised Jane Harmon the first question, so over to you, Jane. Uh, well, I, everybody, I thought that that was by far the most interesting presentation of issues around Iran I've, that I've ever heard. And I hear Robin regularly, uh, and Robin, you just amplified yourself times three, uh, which is hard for you to do since you're so amplified just as one little human. Uh, but that was spectacular, spectacular. Um, I was trying to think of what didn't, what wasn't raised, and I do have two questions, but they're, they're, they, they can be answered quickly. Number one, uh, I read that Secretary of State Pompeo recently said, well, we're out of the JCPOA, but we're really not for purposes of snapback. Uh, and then I heard that the Europeans dismissed this idea. I just wonder if 
that passed the laugh test or that is true or what. That's one. But the other one is, uh, I think, more important, uh, which is that in the newspapers today, I actually read printed newspapers, go figure, um, there is a, a story about Iran um, uh, outing Israel for a cyber attack on one of its ports. And my question is, um, now we finally have a, uh, a, gov- a government in Israel after a, a full year of disarray. Um, there is this question of annexation of parts of the West Bank that could happen as early as July if the U.S. gives permission. Uh, how does all this play? If, uh, if Israel annexes the part of the West Bank, something that some of us think will destroy the two-state solution, which we, some of us think is a much better uh, option, uh, and there is a Palestinian uprising and, 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 uh, what does... Where does Iran fit in all this? Suzanne, do you want to start? Sure. I'll try to be real quick. Um, There is a legal case to be made um, that the U.S. still has standing under the JCPOA to try to push for snapback, essentially to avoid the expiration of the U.N. arms embargo, which would come this fall. I think while that may be a legal solution available to the administration, it's not one that has a lot of diplomatic sense because it's only going to infuriate our partners and allies, uh, and particularly the Europeans. So it's a gambit they're trying. I'm not. Uh, it wouldn't be one I would advise. In terms of how annexation plays to the Iranians' favor, um, I think that it would be just a gift to a system that has lost most of its appeal internally and certainly all of its appeal externally. Um, and it would uh, undercut what we've seen even during the time of corona, increasing ties between Israel and a number of states across the Gulf um, because it would make all of those kinds of interactions much more politically toxic and it would give the Iranian uh, anti-Israeli and, and, and virulently anti-Semitic rhetoric uh, a new lease on life. So it would be terribly unfortunate. Henry, did you want to uh, weigh in on that? I, I, I agree with Suzanne wholeheartedly on, on both. I think just, just one point to dovetail off the, the cyber attack, uh, the, the two cyber attacks, one on each side. I, I, I do think now that we have a government in, in Israel, uh, there won't be significant changes in how the Israelis handle Iran policy. It's always been uh, a, a consensus-based policy from the military and national security establishment and the prime minister, uh, the alternate prime minister and the minister of defense, Benny Gantz, uh, was Netanyahu's chief of staff. So I, I, I think that while a government uh, is, is a gift for the Israeli people and the Israeli system, which has been laboring without one for more than a year, it's, it doesn't signal a dramatic change in, in how Israel appro- approaches Iran. Great. So let me turn to Mark Fitzpatrick from IISS. Uh, Mark, you have the next question. Thanks very much. Uh, can you hear me? Not well. Not well. Um, let me try this. Uh, uh, Suzanne, at the end of your presentation, you mentioned the potential for U.S.-Iran military conflict. Do you think there's any um, possibility that such a conflict um, could be sparked by um, U.S. efforts to stop Iran oil tankers from offloading in Venezuela, given that both states are sanctioned by the United States and uh, um, the United States uh, has it out for both of them? 
I think anything's a possibility. I would suspect that, you know, the Iranians aren't well positioned to respond, uh, at least in real time, if the United States tries to prevent that offloading or in, in any way disrupt um, the shipment of large supplies of Iranian crude uh, to Venezuela. Um, but the Iranians uh, have a, a real incentive to continue to make their predicament a priority for the uh, international community. They saw that diplomacy um, was the response to provocations that took place from May of last year through uh, September with the attack on uh, Abqaiq and Khares oil field in Saudi Arabia. That helped to prompt uh, an enormous new array of diplomatic energy and some um, proposals for financial relief to Tehran. Um, I can't imagine that they wouldn't try to repeat that playbook, uh, given that the, the world's attention has been distracted from um, the specifics of Iran's uh, predicament under U.S. sanctions. Thanks. Did you want to weigh in? No, I, I, I agree. Let's, let's uh, hear, hear the next question. Great. Uh, the next person is Tom Miller, Chairman of the Board of Missing Persons. Uh, yeah, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, it's uh, International um, Commission on Missing Persons. I've got a question um, for the panelists on Afghan refugees. The um, large numbers of Afghans who've been living in Iran, and we've seen that they've been going back uh, to Afghanistan. Can you speak to the numbers, how much they've uh, been infected with COVID, how this has affected the relationship between the two countries, what the status of the border is, you go on and on and on. But I'm just, you know, interested in this this dimension of COVID in Iran. Thank you. And before, before you answer that, uh, we've been allowed to extend for 15 minutes, so if others have questions, we're going to try to take those as well. Um, go ahead, Suzanne. I think what we're seeing in Iran is uh, consistent with Iran's past practice. In times of economic constraint, there is always a, a new pressure on trying to repatriate Afghan refugees. Um, in this case, it appears that it has been done in some cases with uh, significant force, and that has led to some diplomatic tensions between uh, Afghan authorities and the Iranians. Um, you know, the reality is that it, the lives of Afghans have always been incredibly precarious in Iran. Um, they have uh, very little access to, um, to proper benefits of citizenship and, and even to the formal economy. Um, that shifted to some extent as, while Iran was using uh, or relying on Afghan refugees and, and other uh, South Asian uh, citizens, Shia, in order to um, mount uh, a transnational expeditionary military force uh, to, to fight on behalf of uh, Bashar Assad in Syria. Um, in, in some cases, for a few years, Iran, uh, Afghans uh, in Iran were celebrated. Um, but largely, they are uh, the subjects of intense discrimination, and, um, uh, and that has always intensified at times of, of economic hardships. Henry, did you want to add anything? No, I, I, I think that's right. The the uh, and the most recent incident that I think Suzanne was perhaps alluding to is the, the, the issue of a number of Afghan refugees who, according to uh, Afghan government officials, were intentionally drowned by Iranian border guards at one of the uh, uh, at, at one of the crossings. So I think that's that's just another uh, fairly emotional issue, especially from the Afghan side, that adds to this dynamic. Great. So now we'll go to Lucas Coates from the U.S. Bishops Conference. 
Lucas, are you still there? I was really more interested in numbers. Lucas? He has removed himself from the queue. Okay. Um, Joe Snow from Northwestern University. Thanks, guys, for the wonderful conversation this morning. I do have a quick question. Henry, you mentioned the widening IRGC responsibilities. I did want to focus a bit on the surveillance efforts. So I'm curious, what do these increased surveillance efforts look like, uh, whether it's through any kind of social media channels or equipment installation, and um, how are they using the, the guys of the pandemic to do that? Sure, it's a really good question, and 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 it's and it has been a bit surprising because while while many countries have been really heavily relying on their uh, tech sectors, and in some countries, for example, Israel, the the security establishment to get a better handle on the COVID outbreak, we we haven't seen the same level of attention by the Revolutionary Guards on this front. Certainly, they have a very robust uh, internal counterintelligence and and surveillance apparatus. Uh, the part of this has been the development of a uh, national internal internet as well as messaging apps that uh, that 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 allow the government presumably to to monitor their their citizens but 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 I have to say that there hasn't been a significant effort to expand or you know take advantage of the crisis if you will to expand their surveillance capacity I think it's just already so uh, so pervasive as it is anything you wanted to add uh, Suzanne Yes, I agree with that entirely. Great. Um, now we turn to Alfred Beagle, who is a journalist. Yes. Yes. Hi. Um, given the domestic turmoil, et cetera, how, what are the implications for Iranian support of its proxies and retention in Syria, particularly with the Israelis pounding them uh, quite frequently and they're taking – uh, they're paying a high cost. So what are the implications in terms of Iranian uh, retention and support to its proxies? Suzanne, you want to take that? Sure, I'm happy Hello? to start. Uh, Henry may want to uh, weigh in as well. Um, but, uh, you know, I, there's, there's a new newfound uh, sense of, uh, I don't know whether to call it optimism, but expectation that, in fact, there may be schisms between uh, the Iranians, the Russians, and or Assad himself. Um, there's very little sign of this or confirmation from the, of this uh, from the Iranian side. They insist the relationship remains as robust as ever. Um, I think we always anticipated, uh, those of us who watch Iran's uh, activities in Syria, uh, that they would adjust to the reality of uh, Israel's determination to continue mowing the lawn and try to um, prevent the installation of capacity uh, both within Syria and, and in Lebanon as well to um, supply and, and produce uh, domestically precision-guided missiles that would really change the balance of power between Israel and its neighbors. Um, that those efforts on behalf of the Israelis continue. Um, the Iranians are adjusting um, to the, the pushback, but I don't see any uh, indication that they have in any way rethought their own approach, uh, either to the technological uh, efforts that they're undertaking, both in Syria and in Lebanon, or to the broader uh, commitment that they have to preserving Bashar Assad and preserving the Ba'ath regime uh, within Syria. So, I, you know, I'm not optimistic that we have come to any um, real uh, 
uh, game change in the nature of that conflict. Uh, and I, I have seen many times the, the hope or expectation that there might, in fact, be um, real differences between Moscow and Tehran. But what, uh, what I think is important is that this has been a strategic partnership that has served the interests of both sides. Both appear to be quite committed to retaining it even where they may have some differences uh, in terms of ultimate objectives and priorities. Henry, do you want to weigh in on that? Sure. I think that's exactly right. The, the Iranians are, are constantly, I think, re, retooling or reassessing the, their force structure, their deployments, what makes the most sense on, on the battlefield. And, and so certainly it's possible there are, there are various rotations and movement of forces, but as, as Suzanne said, I, I, I haven't seen any uh, really decisive indications of a dramatic change. And I think the, the uh, flurry of headlines about this has more to do with Israeli domestic politics than it does Iran. The, the comments that created um, quite a number of headlines came from a senior aide to the former defense minister, Naftali Bennett, who is sent out of a job and I think was trying to burnish his credentials uh, on, on the way out. So I get the last question, and then we'll wrap up. Um, I, and it plays off one of the recent questions about Syria. What about Iraq? It has a new government now, finally. And he is seen as someone who is friendly with the United States. Is this, is, what, what is his relationship with Iran? Is that likely um, to, to change the new government, is it likely to change anything about Iran's influence, uh, intervention, uh, support for proxies inside Iraq? Is, uh, is that changing at all? And then the, the last area that we haven't touched on is Yemen. And uh, the Saudis are looking for a ceasefire. The war is, is ta- has taken on costs it can no longer easily absorb. Um, the Iranians have long wanted a, a peace deal out of Yemen. Do you think the pandemic will get us any closer to finally ending uh, the Yemen war. Suzanne, do you want to start out? I'll start. Look forward to hearing Henry's views on both those issues. Um, with respect, I'll start with the latter first. Um, with respect to Yemen, um, I think, you know, here we're going to see the limits of Iranian influence because ultimately their relationships in Yemen are very different than their relationships in uh, other conflicts, particularly uh, Iraq as well as Syria, where they have much more sustained uh, direct ties, formative ties, really, to the proxy militias that are in, have been involved in, in, in the Levant uh, part of the Arab world. Um, in, in Yemen, they were the beneficiaries in some respects of uh, decisions by the Saudis and others that enabled them to in, increase their relationship and, and direct supply and training of the Houthi militia. But the Houthi militia has its, has its own leadership, its own interests and objectives. Um, and I think my sense is that there is uh, a determination on their side to take advantage of what they see as a, an opportunity to expand their, their gains from this war, um, even if it means perpetuating it. So my concern is that, you know, not due to necessarily a direct interest on the part of the Iranians, um, but rather because of the local dynamics that we're not going to see um, a, a tremendous uh, – we're not going to see Yemen move to a period of, less con- of, of lower conflict, uh, even though there appears to be some political will now on the part of the Saudis. Um, and that is, uh, you know, hugely unfortunate. 
Um, with respect to Iraq, um, I, you know, I think we see the names change, the faces change. There is intent and goodwill. Um, there is continued engagement on the part of the United States, and this provides an opportunity. But realistically, um, the Iranians have an, a, just a vast amount of sway, um, not just at the senior leadership level, but at every level beneath that. All of that is, um, I think, to some extent, restrained by the growing evidence of uh, vast antipathy on the part of Iraqis toward um, both the government itself as well as to the uh, to the Iranian influence over the government. But to date, that really hasn't persuaded the Iranians to alter their approach in any significant way, and I don't see how it would um, in the short term, unfortunately. And, Henry, do you want to address that and also the issue of, of what kind of you, – you indicated that the IRGC in, uh, is getting more, far more money – uh, does that indicate more ambitious plans in the region? Uh, and how does that affect both Iraq and Yemen? Sure. I, I see it more as, a, and as an effort by the government to backstop the uh, Revolutionary Guard during all of this, this tumult, not, 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 not necessarily in, uh, you know, an effort to expand its portfolio, but, but I think it ensures, especially during a time of uh, great change with the killing of Qasem Soleimani and, and his uh, successor now taking the reins of the Quds Force, uh, an effort to ensure that it has the resources it needs to maintain its maintain its 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 presence in these theaters. Yeah, I I, I agree with Suzanne on both Yemen and and Iraq. On, on Yemen, I'd just say the inclination from the Saudi side, uh, especially after what's what's been a fairly uh, tumultuous few weeks uh, in U.S. Saudi relations. Uh, I think it re re remains keen to, to pull the ripcord here and try to see a, a, a wind down in the conflict, but that, as, as Suzanne said, the, the local dynamics uh, that, that are less to do with Iran and more to do with the, the Houthis, I think, will, will continue to stand in, in the way there. And, and I think in, in, in terms of Iraq, certainly there's, there's a lot of optimism that the new prime minister, who's uh, more... Uh, I, I, I think is perceived as a lot more talented, smart. It, he knows he's, he's not a politician per se, and uh, and, and has the, the confidence of some important sectors of of the society. Um, but there are just very substantial structural barriers to him getting anything done uh, substantially and lasting, either on the economy or in terms of trying to find a successful balance between the U.S. and Iran. And, and I think it's important to note that, that the Iranians continue to test the, the U.S. In, in Iraq. The assassination of Qasem Soleimani came after two incidents, one, the killing of a U.S. contractor in the end of December uh, by, by Iranian-related militias, as well as the storming of the U.S. embassy compound that apparently triggered the president to, uh, to, uh, to move on Soleimani. And, and the Iranians responded fairly, fairly mildly. But just two months later, uh, Iranian-backed militias again uh, were killing U.S. forces in, in Iraq, and the U.S. responded fairly mildly, not against Iran itself, but against uh, those, those militias in Iraq. So, so I think the, the signal being sent from Washington, both the consolidation of bases within Iraq, as, as well as its reluctance to, uh, to, t to uh, act more aggressively to enforce this red line, I think gives Iran every reason to continue to poke and prod and see where the where the true U.S. Uh, 
red lines are, and I think that's 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 a recipe for for miscalculation uh, in the months ahead. Thank you so very much, Suzanne and Henry, for a spectacular hour and fifteen minutes. Um, I, as I said before, I've learned a lot, and I always turn to both of you uh, for analysis and guidance on what is one of the most interesting countries in the world, one of the most troubled and problematic for the United States. Um, so I, I hope everyone, all 244 of you who joined us today, will join me in a virtual clap for a um, really spectacular uh, program this morning. I thank you very, very much, and thank you all for joining us. And with that, I'll say goodbye and stay well. Thank you, Robin. Thanks. Thank you, Robin. Robin, that was fantastic. Thank you. That does conclude today's conference. Thank you all for participating. At this time, you may disconnect from the conference.